Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that the first book from Faith Matters Publishing is now available. It's called All Things New and was written by Fiona and Terrell Givens. When I finished the book, I just thought this has so much potential to actually change lives. They go through and trace the roots of our religious vocabulary and show how so many of these words have become totally unmoored from their original foundation and how a lot of those traditions have been carried forward for hundreds and even thousands of years and are in a lot of ways still damaging us today. And then they dive into how we can reformulate our language in healthy and inspiring ways. This book is so healing. It's hopeful. It's a totally paradigm shifting book that you will not be able to put down. You can pick up a copy for yourself or for friends and family. It's available at Desert Book on Amazon, Audible, and Apple Books. We're so grateful for Terrell and Fiona and all of the amazing work that they've done here. All right, that's all for the book for now, but we have a lot more to come. Thanks as always, and here's the episode. Hey everybody, this is Tim Chavez with Faith Matters. In this episode, Terrell Givens and Paul Reeve explore the history of the church's priesthood temple ban that concluded in 1978. Paul is the Simmons Professor of Mormon Studies at the University of Utah. His award-winning book, Religion of a Different Color, Race and the Mormon Struggle for Whiteness, is considered by many to be the best book written to date on the subject. Dr. Reeve has also written a fantastic essay that addresses how to make sense of our history of denying priesthood and temple blessings to our black brothers and sisters. It's a fascinating read, and you really shouldn't miss it. You can view it on our website at faithmatters.org. In this podcast episode, Paul and Terrell go both wide and deep on the priesthood temple ban. Among other historical details, they discuss how the church was broadly criticized as being too inclusive in its early years, not white enough. This became a factor in Brigham Young's 1852 decision to ban black people from the priesthood and temple. They also explore some of the explanations that developed in the church to explain the ban during its 126-year duration, and how each of these explanations has since been rejected and disavowed by the church. We think this is an incredibly important and insightful episode, and we hope that you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Conversations with Terrell Givens. I'm your host, and uh, visiting with us today is Professor Paul Reeve, who is Simmons Professor of Mormon Studies at the University of Utah. That's right. And probably well-known to many for his important work, uh, Religion of a Different Color, uh, published by Oxford University Press just a couple of years ago. 2015. 2015. And time goes faster as you get older. You'll it does. discover Paul. <laughs> and uh, won, a, won a few awards, didn't it? Uh, I think it was Best Book by the uh, Mormon History Association and and uh, yes. quite an, an impressive piece of scholarship. So we're here today to talk about a number of things. We, we'd like to talk about your book uh, in more general terms. We'd like to talk about um, race issues in the Latter-day Saint tradition. Uh, we want to talk about such things as the priesthood ban. We'd like to talk about its origin and history. A lot of people in the church are still unfamiliar with the specifics of that past. Uh, we'd like to talk about where we are as a church today and, and where we might be heading in terms of, uh, of issues related to, to race and color. So why don't you uh, start us out with just giving us a kind of good overview of the, the priesthood ban that was in place roughly from, what, 1852 until 1978, more or less. Um, and l- let me uh, just say a few things by way of preface to this, this particular conversation. Um, Joanna Brooks published a book recently on Mormonism and white supremacy in which she made the claim early on in her book that there is still a pervasive amount of mythology in the Mormon community about the origins and the rationale behind the priesthood ban. And uh, so that, I think, gives us one good rationale for trying to add some clarification and, and light to the subject today. So why don't you just jump in with that? Sure. Well, um, I think it's important to recognize that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is born into a fraught racial culture. 
of the 1830s, uh, issues about race and slavery are percolating throughout uh, the United States. And remember, this is an American-born faith. Uh, So it's really uh, difficult to imagine that those questions wouldn't then come to have uh, an influence on the way that the early church develops. Uh, So situate that uh, against the fact that Joseph Smith claims uh, at least four revelations where he uh, articulates that this gospel message is to be taken unto every creature. Latter-day Saints like to quote every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, but uh, I think every creature leaves no room for doubt. Right. right. This is universal. Reinforced by Book of Mormon language as well, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. uh, it's it's a universal gospel message, and early Latter-day Saints uh, seem to take that seriously. The first documented person of black African descent to join the faith is 1830 in Kirtland, Ohio, and there have been black Latter-day Saints ever since. Uh, the missionary message went to every creature, and they seemed to take that seriously. Uh, There's no uh, documented evidence of Joseph Smith ever articulating a racial priesthood or temple restriction. What a great beginning. It is a very good beginning. Could we just end with that? (laughs) That's a good place uh, to end. And, and, you know, I would say then I see the 1978 revelation as returning us back to those universal roots. Right. Uh, Not something dramatically different. It's not a development. No. It's, in fact, restoring us back to where we started. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's an important way to think about our racial history, in fact, is... Now, that's a new understanding, though, right? Because for some time... It was taught and I think genuinely believed by most in the leadership as well as the membership that uh, the, the restrictive policies and ideology behind the ban went back to Joseph Smith himself. That's right. And, uh, you know, that memory, I think, uh, that false memory uh, gets solidified at the turn of the 20th century and it becomes the new memory moving forward becomes entrenched in collective Mormon memory, in fact, um, uh, to the point that it takes a revelation to get rid of uh, in 1978. Right. Right. Now, can, can I just ask one question at, at this point? I was talking to one of the more uh, preeminent LDS historians many years ago, and he gave it his personal opinion that the stature of Joseph Smith was such that he thought it unlikely that any subsequent prophet would deviate from the pattern he laid down, uh, unless there had been some intimations from Joseph Smith of movement in that direction. But you you find no evidence that that's the case. No, I, I don't. And maybe we should um, talk about a couple of things uh, that I see at play um, as uh, the open racial vision established under uh, Joseph Smith gives way to a race-based priesthood and temple restriction under Brigham Young. Um, so Uh, One factor you have to consider then is uh, Latter-day Saints are participating in this open racial vision. Uh, Outsiders looking in suggest that they are too inclusive of people that the rest of white society know should be segregated and even enslaved. Um, Yeah, this reminds me, I actually have a few excerpts here from your, your book that this connects to. You wrote the perception that Mormons were too inclusive earned them fear and scorn in a national culture that favored exclusion, segregation, and even the extermination of undesirable races. That's exactly right. I mean, I think that's a crucial context to keep in mind here. So just one example, in the state of Missouri, a newspaper uh, article says that Mormons in the state of Missouri have opened an asylum for rogues and vagabonds and free blacks. They're accepting all the undesirable people. Right. It's uh, a collection of undesirables, um, and that uh, generates fear and concern, especially in Missouri. Uh, uh, Mormons have invited free blacks to the state of Missouri to incite a slave rebellion and to steal our white wives and daughters. Fear of race mixing uh, in 1833. Uh, That helps us to account for the uh, Latter-day Saint expulsion from Jackson County, Missouri. It begins with uh, W.W. Phelps issuing an editorial uh, to black Latter-day Saints. If you're going to gather to Missouri, you have to understand it's a slave state. And 
the laws of Missouri govern your ability to move freely in this state. You have to have papers that substantiate your status as a free black. And he quotes two sections of the Missouri State Code saying if you don't have those papers, you're subject to being whipped and expelled from the state. I don't want my fellow black Latter-day Saints to experience that. Be aware if you're gathering to Zion, these laws govern your ability to move freely in this state. And uh, outsiders in Missouri read that editorial and say Phelps has invited free blacks to incite a slave rebellion. And they uh, uh, scatter his press, destroy his building, uh, drag a couple of Latter-day Saints into the town square and tar and feather them. That's the beginning of the Latter-day Saint expulsion from Jackson County. And it's about racial issues. And they also accuse accuse Latter-day Saints of inviting these free blacks, uh, like I said, to steal their white wives and daughters, uh, casting fear projecting fears of race mixing onto Latter-day Saints. And that just simply takes on a life of its own throughout the rest of the 19th century, right. especially after polygamy is openly announced. Uh, outsiders imagine that Mormons are facilitating race mixing. Now, is there any movement in Joseph Smith's language or writings or speaking as a result? Yes. So uh, uh, in 1835, we have a section in the Doctrine and Covenants where Joseph Smith responds to this context by saying, uh, we as Latter-day Saints won't baptize uh, enslaved black people uh, without permission from their masters. And he instructs missionaries preaching in the South, uh, you know, don't uh, baptize enslaved people. people of black African descent without uh, first converting their masters or permission. Uh, So it leads to internal policies trying to respond to these accusations that are being leveled against them. And then in 1836, uh, that fear of race mixing uh, really gets combined with a fear of the abolitionist movement. So in the 19th century, if you were an abolitionist, um, anti-abolitionist accused you of really being interested in race mixing. If you want to free the blacks, what you really want to do is intermarry amongst them, right. is the accusation that's leveled against abolitionists. They even leveled that at Lincoln, right? Yes. Uh, in fact, the term uh, miscegenation is crafted specifically in Lincoln's uh, 1864 re-election. Uh, the Emancipation Proclamation by his opponent is called the Miscegenation Proclamation. Right. You're freeing uh, four million black people, and what you're trying to do is uh, set them loose to intermarry and intermix amongst the rest of the population. And what's at stake isn't just interracial marriage in their minds, democracy's at stake. Senator Calhoun has said on the floor of the United States Senate in 1848, democracy is the government of a white race. He believed that uh, people who were not white were racially incapable of participating in democracy. And so uh, what you have to understand then, as uh, outsiders project those fears onto Latter-day Saints, they're not merely suggesting that Latter-day Saints are a suspect religious group. They are a suspect racial group, and American democracy is at stake. Right. So the stakes are really high um, as this contest plays out. Um, so take us to 1852 and what, what Phillips then. Yeah. So um, before we quite get to 1852, let me just drop us into 1847 really briefly to say that it's important to note that Brigham Young himself is also on record in 1847 as being favorably aware of a black priesthood holder. So um, I'm saying that open racial vision is articulated even by Brigham Young as late as March 1847. So it's three years after Brigham, uh, excuse me, Joseph Smith has been murdered, and Brigham right. Young is on record uh, referring to Q. Walker Lewis. Uh, it's an interview that takes place in Winter Quarters in March of 1847. You have a black Latter-day Saint, William McCary, who's complaining that he is not being treated uh, fairly by Latter-day Saints at Winter Quarters because of his race. And he's probably right. He was experiencing racism. And uh, Brigham Young, uh, in that interview, uh, as McCary continues to complain um, and says, McCary says, well, I don't have any uh, positions of leadership or authority. Brigham Young says, well, we don't care about the color. And to reinforce that point, 
he cites favorably Q. Walker Lewis as a black priesthood holder. We even ordain black men to the priesthood, he says. We have one of the best elders, an African, in Lowell, a barber. That's pretty much a direct quote uh, right. from Brigham Young. And those those uh, attributes that he describes perfectly match what we know about Q. Walker Lewis. He is a black man in the low Massachusetts branch who is a barber by trade and was ordained uh, to the priesthood by uh, uh, William Smith, uh, who was an apostle at the time. Uh, Joseph's brother. Joseph's brother. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh and he is a functioning elder in the low Massachusetts branch. Uh, so you have movement then from 1847 to 1852 with Brigham Young himself. And I think it's really a concern over race mixing that um, you see Brigham Young's position uh, devolve from 1847 when he uh, says we don't care about the color to 1852 when he very much uh, articulates a concern over race. Um, and that uh, first open articulation um, takes place uh, during debates uh, in the Utah Territorial Legislative Session. So some of this gets complicated because when is he speaking as prophet and when is he speaking as governor? And That's exactly right. Uh, those roles heavily overlap in that legislative session. It's an all-Latter-day Saint legislative body, uh, and Brigham Young is prophet of the church, as well as governor of the territory of Utah. In one of his speeches he gives that legislative session, uh, he he basically says there is no distinction between those two roles. He has no problem overlapping those roles. And he says he has every right to come and dictate in matters spiritual and temporal to the legislative body. And he's really speaking against uh, federal judges who have been appointed, and some of them have run away because they say, you know, you have this, an American theocracy operating. Um, and, you know, one of his speeches in 1852, he lambasts them. Um, so, yeah, th- that complicates it. And you have uh, one legislator, Orson Pratt, who is also a sitting apostle. So his roles are also, uh, you know, uh, mixed between um, uh, legislative and uh, ecclesiastical. And they're butting heads in that legislative session. Orson Pratt and Brigham Young butt heads. Uh, they're debating um, uh, several bills. There's an Indian indenture bill. Uh, there's a black servant code uh, trying to define the legal relationship between white enslavers who have converted to uh, the LDS faith and brought their black enslaved people with them to Utah Territory. And it's important to note that some of those black slaves are also Latter-day Saints. So we're talking about white Latter-day Saints enslaving their fellow co-religionists. Uh, what laws will govern that relationship? That's one of the bills under debate. Uh, and they're also debating an election bill. Um Orson Pratt stakes out a position whereby he wants the uh, law that will will legalize slavery in Utah Territory outright rejected. That's the law that would make the angels to weep. That's exactly right. Um, He's uh, disgusted by the notion that Latter-day Saints would contemplate uh, the enslavement of uh, people uh, who he calls innocent. and he says there's no reason to do so. It's a, a free territory. Uh, why would we enact positive legislation to bring, bring slavery where it doesn't exist? And he also points to the movement, uh, the anti-slavery movement around the globe. I think he probably has the British Empire in mind where he says, you know, this is on its way out globally. Why would we enact it here? Right. And like you mentioned, he says it's enough to cause the angels in heaven to blush. Uh, he's horrified by the thought of introducing slavery, but he doesn't win that debate. So they pass legislation that legalizes, they call it servitude, though, right? That's right. Um, and it applies equally to, to whites as well as blacks, a kind of indentured servitude? The first couple of provisions of the bill do, and then the rest of the bill really apply to uh, those who are uh, enslaved. Um, so... Really, it's it's a bill that is aimed um, specifically at regulating white enslavers rather than the black enslaved. 
so it's very different from the kind of bills that uh, were passed to regulate slavery in the South. Brigham Young uh, really speaks out against chattel slavery um, that he sees in the South, but he also speaks out against um, immediate abolitionists um, so that he's he trying sees to find, in the North. trying to find a middle road. He is. And it's closer to Northern legislation, right, in that it, it provides for event, eventual emancipation of, of Yeah, the, the, bill that, the bill that actually passes is a form of gradual emancipation. It's a conservative form of gradual emancipation, meaning that it would free no one than a slave. But it would not pass the condition of servitude onto the next generation. Right. So uh, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, or excuse me, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, all pass forms of gradual emancipation. And there are echoes, I think, of those bills in what Utah passes. Uh, the Pennsylvania bill, for example, frees no one then a slave. Uh, children born to those enslaved would be called servants until age 28, and then they would be freed, right? Uh, Utah's bill doesn't have a uh, clause, you know, that they have to wait until age 28. It just simply doesn't pass on the condition to the next generation. So the rising generation would be free. Those who are brought to Utah territory as slaves would die as slaves. So it's a conservative form of gradual emancipation. And so how do we transition from this then to the priesthood ban? Well, um, as that debate is taking place, uh, you have Brigham Young uh, first publicly articulate a racial uh, priesthood restriction. Um, he will talk about a curse of Cain. Uh, he says that Cain killed his brother Abel, and as a result, uh, uh, all of Cain's descendants, who he understands to be people of black African descent, even though we shouldn't understand it that way. That's a part of the cultural uh, inheritance that predates uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints by a couple hundred years. It's a part of the broader Judeo-Christian tradition uh, where Jewish scribes uh, interpreted uh, the book of Genesis and that curse as being a black skin. Um, and so that was just sort of common understanding. So it's just an appropriation of a Christian paradigm. Exactly right. He, he brings it into the Latter-day Saint tradition and gives it theological weight at this moment uh, in, in 1852. Uh, he, he's, he says that all of Abel's descendants who uh, he understands to be white people will have to get the priesthood before Cain's descendants can have the priesthood. Now, it seems to me that at this moment, you're already kind of insinuating into the theological rationale uh, a, an allusion to a pre-existence, right? Because you're positing that there are these kind of spiritual categories, right? And some are going to come through the line of Cain and some are going to come through the line of Abel. And we can't allow one to be privileged over the other. So, so correct me if, 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 if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that what's happening is we're finding a kind of perfect storm of circumstances that conduce toward the priesthood ban. On the one hand, You've got ready and available to you this Christian widespread belief in a, a, a black curse. Yeah. Mormonism adds to the mix a conception of a pre-existence, which seems to me tremendously important in what develops. Because going back to Plato in classical uh, thought, going back to origin in Christian thought, uh, thinkers had always... Tr- tried to come to terms with explanations for the disparity in the human family of circumstance and race. And suddenly, Latter-day Saints have this conception of a pre-mortal existence that they can appeal to, to, right, to, to explain differences in, in human opportunities and circumstance in this world. And then the third ingredient that is added is, is the translation of the Book of Abraham, which is coming to be widely disseminated and will eventually be canonized in 1880, um, which is easily misread as referring to a priesthood ban on descendants of uh, Egyptus, right? Yeah. And so you've got all of these three circumstances conspiring to almost make a, a priesthood ban inevitable, given the way you read those, those three different factors. Yeah. Um, so, so let me just make uh, uh, some important 
distinctions and clarifications. Um, so for Brigham Young, uh, what he articulates um, in 1852 is uh, all grounded in the Bible and this uh, curse of Cain that he sees as his justification. So Orson Hyde will go to the pre-existence more explicitly, but Brigham Young doesn't. That's correct. So um, Orson Hyde uh, gives that as an explanation in 1845, not for a priesthood restriction, uh, just for just the curse. How? Skin. Yeah. Uh, where do we account for where black skin comes from? Um, so uh, he will articulate that Brigham Young outright rejects in 1869 to the School of the Prophets any notion uh, that anyone was less valiant, neutral uh, in the war in heaven in the pre-existence. So that persists as a kind of underground mythology that will resurface later. That's right. That's exactly right. So here's how I understand it. I think Brigham Young establishes a theological pressure point that um, violates the second article of faith. So uh, Joseph Smith says we're held accountable for our own sins, not for Adam's transgression. Uh, Brigham Young will articulate a racial restriction uh, that traces to the murder of uh, uh, Abel by his brother Cain, uh, and then holds people of Black African descent responsible for a murder they took no part in. Right. So that violates the second article of faith. So the pressure point to alleviate that pressure point, then the explanation uh, that will be articulated by others, never by Brigham Young. Um, he will only use the Bible and uh, the curse of Cain to ex explain this. But uh, to alleviate that pressure point, then you have others who will uh, come back to this notion that uh, people of black African descent must have been less valiant or neutral uh, or fence-sitters. Or hide all the way through B.H. Roberts. Yes. Um, well, and it, it continues on into the 20th century. Uh, Joseph Fielding Smith uh, uh, who will say not neutral, but less valiant. Right. Um, Distinction without much of a difference. <laughs> exactly right. That's exactly right. So it never goes away because um, you have that problem that Brigham Young establishes. It's a violation of the second article of faith. Um, someone brings up, uh, you know, uh, neutrality in the war in heaven in 1869 to the school of the prophets and Brigham Young shoots it down, shoots it down immediately and immediately returns to Curse of Cain. That's the only explanation he'll ever use. And it's also important to note that he never draws upon the book of Abraham either, only the Bible. So the book of Abraham will start to be used by George Q. Cannon after it's canonized in 1880 as another way of alleviating that theological pressure point. Right. So those um, uh, explanations will continue to percolate all the way through 1978. So any intimation ever on the part of Brigham Young that there was any um, revelatory basis behind his pronouncements? No. Um, in fact, so what we see in the debate in 1852, by the end of his most, uh, um, you know, how do I put this, his most uh, forceful speech, it's drenched in racism. It's the 5th of February, 1852 speech. Uh, he really stakes out a, a strong position. By the end of that, he says, um, you know, I know people think I'm wrong. And I think he's referring to Orson Pratt, Orson Pratt because we know that Orson Pratt gave a speech on the 4th of February. Unfortunately, that speech wasn't recorded, so we don't know what he said. And but no other voices that we know of besides Orson Pratt that were raised in protest. Orson Spencer um, strikes kind of a middle ground in his speech, but unfortunately, the other speeches on this debate are not recorded. Kind of like Adam God, they all fall in line. Yeah, um, we we know that Orson Pratt is advocating for black male voting rights in 1852. And so that's an important new piece of historical information to understand why Brigham Young says some of the things he says in his 5th of February speech. So... Uh, in, on the 5th of February, I imagine on the 4th of February, even though his, Orson Pratt's speech isn't recorded, um, Orson Pratt's saying, no other prophet ever said this before. Brigham Young on the 5th of February, if no other prophet ever said it before, I, I say it now. Black people cannot hold the priesthood because of the curse of Cain, is what right. he says. Um, but he also says... Um, Black people cannot rule over me in Utah territory, meaning we will not give them the right to vote. And most horrifically, uh, we just as well give mules the right to vote as 
people of Black African descent or Native Americans. Uh, so that's Brigham Young at his racist worst. Um, but remember, he's responding to Orson Pratt, who's advocating for Black voting rights. And so he's saying, they won't rule over me in this territory, they won't have the right to vote, and they won't rule over me in this church, meaning they won't have the priesthood. Uh, so those two things are really animating the debate. At the end of that speech, like I said, he also says, I acknowledge that other people will disagree with me and they'll say I'm not right, but I know I'm right. I'm only citing that to say he's not saying thus saith the Lord. Right. He's not claiming a revelation. The speech uh, isn't even published in the Journal of Discourses. It's not published in the Deseret News. It's recorded by George Watt. Watt will transcribe uh, some of it, but we've gone back to his original Pittman version um, and we'll be publishing that, um, uh, you know, in a documentary collection of that 1852 legislative session. Uh, I'm only saying it was never canonized, never included in the Latter-day Saint scripture. So if that's the speech that anyone wants to claim as revelation, um, I say let's uh, you know publish it and uh, <laughs> right. Right. let's confront it right, right. because uh, it, it's pretty horrific. Uh, and he says that he's striking out on his own. If no other prophet ever said it, is a clear indication that I'm moving us in a new direction. I say it now. If no one said it before, I'm saying it now. Uh, he admits that he is uh, moving in a different direction. So the next pivotal moment in the story, uh, could we say around 1908, thereabouts, when Joseph Smith, one of the leading figures who reinterprets those earlier developments um, and subsumes them within a larger narrative of a kind of continuous um, tradition from Joseph Smith, rather than seeing it as a Brigham Young innovation. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think, you know, there's there's some, uh, I would say the next really important moment is 1879, because you have a black priesthood holder, uh, Elijah Abel, who appeals for uh, the right to be sealed to his Temple wife, uh, to receive his endowment and to be sealed to his wife, Marianne, who's also a black Latter-day Saint, who passed away in 1877. He wants to have his love for her uh, sealed in, in, in the temple and to receive his endowment. He received his Washington anointing in the Kirtland Temple, uh, participated in early baptisms for the dead in Nauvoo, uh, then moved to Cincinnati, uh, immigrated to Utah, baptized two additional times, um, and then in 1879 appeals to John Taylor uh, uh, for his uh, temple admission and, and, and to be sealed to his wife. So I think 1879 is important because if you want to say that the racial restriction is unambiguously in place as late as 1879, why does the leader of the Latter-day Saint faith have to conduct an investigation over whether we allow Elijah Abel into the temple? If it's a set policy, whatever we want to call it, in 1879, why would it even then need an investigation? Right. And in fact, Taylor conducts an investigation uh, the result of that investigation is uh, Joseph F. Smith is sent to interview Elijah Abel. Abel produces his certificates, um, claims that Joseph Smith sanctioned his priesthood. Uh, Joseph F. Smith comes back to the meeting, reports that, hey, um, he's a valid priesthood holder. Uh, they allow his priesthood to stand, but don't allow him temple admission. So you have the development of a temple restriction that coincides with the Priesthood restriction. So priesthood restriction, 1852, temple restriction, 1879? Yeah, some people um, will say that Brigham Young is already restricting temple admission. Um, the problem is um, it's more belated remembrances. Um, so uh, I haven't found a contemporary document from the 1850s and 60s from Brigham Young, but it's later uh, remembrances who say, well, I think Brigham Young said this, you know, um, so it, he may have, and um, Joseph S. Smith later remembers that Elijah Abel actually applied to Brigham Young first, and Brigham Young told him no. If that takes place, it doesn't survive in the written record, but what does survive is the 1879 account, and John Taylor is still unaware of what to do. Elijah Abel goes on a, a third mission for the church um, uh, in 1884 and returns, uh, dies within two weeks of his return. He's in his late 70s, um, and his obituary is published in the Deseret News. 
whoever writes it is aware of the shrinking space for Black Latter-day Saints. It's not a typical eulogy. It basically is a recitation of his priesthood certificate dates. He died a faithful Latter-day Saint in service to his cause, exercising his priesthood as a missionary. Here are his priesthood ordination dates. Um, so then we go to 1908, where in Joseph F. Smith um, erases from collective Latter-day Saint memory those black Latter-day Saints who complicate this white story. Um, he falsely remembers back in 1908 that Joseph Smith declared Elijah Abel's priesthood null and, val- uh, null and void. Excuse me. So that false memory then um, puts the priesthood restriction in place from the beginning. It's always been there. God put it in place. It traces back to the eternities. Human beings can't do anything about it. So that's, in my estimation, um, the last brick in this wall of priesthood segregation and temple segregation. So that's the narrative becomes enshrined around 1908. Yeah. Uh, endures without a hiccup until 1960s, would you say? It's, is Lester Bush the first who who seriously challenges that narrative about the past? Yeah, there, um, Stephen Taggart before that, um, basically articulates the Missouri thesis where he says it really wasn't from the beginning, but it developed as a result of the context we talked about in Missouri. Lester Bush, um, then in his, uh, 1973 article says, no, it's not even Missouri. It's, it's Utah territory and it's Brigham Young. Uh, and so you have then historians who are going back and investigating and saying, uh, hey, that narrative doesn't really hold up to historical scrutiny. There is no evidence to support, uh, the restriction being in place from the beginning. Um, and so that obviously, um, you know, challenges the existing kind of understanding. And uh, Lester Bush claims that he had evidence that uh, Spencer W. Kimball uh, read his his essay. Um, now, I'm not drawing, uh, you know, direct point-to-point dots, but, you know... Um, it seems to clearly have been a factor in his thinking. A factor to reevaluate what the current assumptions were. Right. Exactly, yeah. So let's jump ahead to 1978. Um, are, are we in a in a spot now kind of like the Catholic Church with limbo, uh, where they recognize after a few thousand years, well, actually a thousand or so, that uh, there wasn't any papal kind of authoritative basis for what was thought to be a doctrine. Um, and uh, we are in a kind of limbo, aren't we? I mean, what what is the status of the priesthood ban in our present understanding? Uh, well, uh, you know, you have um, leaders like Bruce R. McConkie within a couple of years of the 1980, uh, excuse me, within a couple of months of the 1978 revelation, who gives a talk at, at BYU, who says, forget everything I said, or Brigham Young said, or George Q. Cannon said, we were speaking with limited light and knowledge which seems to be an indication of the lack of uh, revelatory knowledge um, as these racial restrictions were put in place and took uh, took on accumulating precedent across the course of the 19th century. Uh, that was never repeated in a general conference setting, uh, never really um, taught in Sunday school or institute. And so even though um, even though 1978 uh, changed in terms of priesthood ordination, allowed black men and women to attend the temple, uh, there really wasn't a concerted effort to unteach the things that were taught. So the problem, though, isn't just with the mythologies, right? It isn't just with the rationales behind the ban. The problem is also with the ambiguity surrounding the, the degree of inspiration and divine authority behind that man, right? And this is a source of agony for many in the church, especially our our black members. Um, If I can just relate a a personal anecdote, um, I've I've done informal surveys of members of the church um, in various settings where I've spoken, asking how many understand the Gospel Topics essay on this subject to be an acknowledgement that the ban was a, a product of racist understanding of the era. And most members of the church raised their hand. 
I've asked the same question in settings uh, where I'm meeting with CES employees <laughs> and nobody <laughs> raises their hand. Yeah. So the essay, deliberately or not, seems to be a, have been written in such a way as to leave open the question of whether this was prophetic error or a long-delayed but anticipated development in a revelatory process. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, uh, it doesn't definitively address that very question. And so it leaves that question lingering, I think, uh, in the minds of some people. Any, um, any signs or hopes that we might find resolution one way or the other? Uh, well, you know, um, I, I really don't know. Uh, I guess for me as a historian, um, what I see is the historical evidence uh, does not indicate, um, you know, this is of divine origin. I see it sort of taking on a life of its own. Um, and I see these important moments where each succeeding generation unwilling to violate the precedent established by the previous generation, even though Brigham Young violates the precedent established by Joseph right. Smith. Um, what I, uh, I guess what, what I, um, more often than not see is, is sometimes, uh, those who don't believe it is of divine origin, um, their faith is sometimes called into question by fellow Latter-day Saints. I've experienced that myself. Right. Um, and it stinks. Uh, if you don't like the message, sometimes you attack the messenger. Well, let me, can I run a hypothesis by you uh, that I think has tremendous bearing on what you're describing? You know, Latter-day Saints evolved in a Jacksonian culture. We're fiercely individualistic. Uh, one theologian said we have an obsessive concern with moral agency and, and individualism. We have a hyper-Protestant sensibility, but we operate within a hyper-Catholic hierarchy. And it seems to me that we confront fairly unique uh, challenges with regards to matters of conscience. Um. You know, Kierkegaard wrote his, his most famous essay on the nature of the Abrahamic sacrifice, which he diagnosed roughly as uh, a call to subordinate personal conscience and morality to a divine mandate. And that is why I think it was very apt to refer to polygamy as an Abrahamic test, right? Mormons had to learn how to, to quiet their personal revulsion for this marital practice in deference to what they saw as, as a prophetic authority. Uh, would it be fair, do you think, to suggest that that may have been one of the factors that paved the way for such horrors as the Mountain Meadows Massacre, where a group of good, faithful Latter-day Saints, in deference to local authorities, felt they had to quiet their moral revulsion at what they were asked to do in order to embark on this massacre of innocent uh, migrants. And I'm wondering if something similar is at work in the anguish that so many people have felt and continue to feel over a priesthood ban where our sensibilities are appalled at this racial differentiation, and yet we're wedded to this conception of prophetic authority that has culturally evolved into a notion of prophetic infallibility, and hence the impasse. Yeah, I think that's a fabulous way to articulate it. I think that's what's at stake for some people. Uh, you know, uh, I taught primary for five years, and uh, primary kids love to march around the room singing Follow the Prophet. Yeah. Um, you know, and I understand, uh, you know, I value being in a religious tradition that has a prophet. Um but uh, the first principle of the gospel is faith in Jesus Christ, not faith in Brigham Young or Thomas S. Monson or Russell M. Nelson. Um, and there's a reason for that. Uh, so I hope that we are also willing to allow prophets to be human. I love uh, uh, D&T section one, uh, what's articulated as, as the Lord's preface to the Doctrine and Covenants. It right. was 
given as uh, the preface to uh, the Book of Commandments, which uh, evolved into the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, and we tend to cherry pick a couple of uh, verses out of that section. I think if we understand it in its full complexity, I sort of imagine the Savior sort of thinking back over uh, the long span of human history and the previous dispensations and thinking about Moses maybe um, killing an Egyptian and hiding his body in the sand and then later called as a prophet. Thinking about Judah who sleeps with his daughter-in-law, uh, David and Bathsheba, uh, Peter who denies knowing the Savior. In fact, we don't get any examples of infallible authorities in the scriptures that, that, I, that I'm familiar with. Our, our scriptures are just replete with these kind of examples. Yeah. And I imagine the Savior sort of taking a deep breath and saying, okay, I need to prepare this last dispensation. And if you look at uh, the verses there in DNC section one, he says, um, your leaders will be weak, they will be prone to error, and they will sin. Weak, error-prone sinners. It's a great description of me. I am on a stumbling journey with God, and um, I identify with Latter-day Saint leaders who are struggling themselves and attempting to do the best with what they have. Uh, and um, when we put them on such a high pedestal, I think we sometimes do them and us a disservice. I um, uh, more readily identify with the Savior's articulation of our leaders as weak, error-prone sinners who, despite their weaknesses and error and sin, accomplish some pretty important things. And then he goes on to say, well, um, this is the only true and living church, speaking in another church collectively, not individually. So you can be led by weak, error-prone sinners, and collectively, as a body of believers, you are true and living. And we leave out the way that he articulates who his servants will be in the last days. Um, and I think we do ourselves a disservice in the process. I think it's okay to let them be human. Um, I don't believe that God uh, told Brigham Young to say what he said. I believe when uh, he makes a prophet a prophet, he does not revoke a prophet's agency. And if a prophet has agency, a prophet can make mistakes. The foundation of the plan that we talk about is grounded in agency. And, right. that, and yet we act like when a prophet becomes a prophet, God is the puppet master and the prophet is the puppet. puppet. And that violates the very foundation of our plan. Uh, so... Um, Ezra Taft Benson, as an apostle, articulated what he called the Samuel principle. Uh, he uses, obviously, the Old Testament to articulate this principle. Uh, it's a talk he gives in 1973, I believe, uh, whereby he says, well, uh, the children of Israel are asking for a king. God tells them no. Uh, they keep complaining. And finally, he says, okay, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They rejected me. Give them a king and let them suffer the consequences. It was 400 years of a monarchy. Those are really grievous consequences. Yeah. And uh, uh, um, Elder Benson at the time said, sometimes he gives us what we want and lets us suffer the consequences. So think about the last 116 pages to the Book of Mormon. Think about the Kirtland Safety Society. Why didn't he simply tell Joseph Smith, don't found the darn bank? It's going to fail and you're going to go through this period of apostasy where people are going to call your prophetic mantle into question. Save yourself the trouble. Because he lets us make mistakes. And I believe he let Brigham Young say what Brigham Young said and let us suffer the consequences. And I think we're still dealing with those consequences. And I think it's white Latter-day Saints who continue sometimes to reassert notions of white supremacy uh, and sort of the rightness of 
those old racial teachings without sort of thinking through their implications, who continue to bear the consequences of those decisions. So, you know, I think understanding that's that's, that's those are hard words because the consequences of a few individuals' misjudgments can be appalling. Um, and yet it seems to me that that should just serve to emphasize the centrality of those baptismal covenants, that if our lives were completely centered around mourning with those who mourn and comforting those in need of comfort and lifting the burdens of, of the burdened, uh, then we would all be addressing this problem as a collective. Yeah, I, I love that. And and that's why I, I feel like um, understanding our own racial history is really important. If we understand the way that Latter-day Saints were racialized at the hands of others, if it can happen to even seemingly white Latter-day Saints, right? If racism can be brought to bear against seemingly white Latter-day Saints, their whiteness called into question. In fact, the Harvard Encyclopedia of Ethnic Groups identifies us as a separate ethnic category. So it was a successful process right. of racializing Mormons in the 19th century. That's right. And the most significant way you claim whiteness for yourself is in distance from blackness. And I see that helping... So that was one of the pressures. I see that helping to explain the racial restrictions, yeah. right? So if we can understand the way that that took place in the 19th century, understand our own racial history... Uh, my hope would be, as you articulate, a willingness then to stand in places of empathy for other groups who are experiencing much more severe racism of their own in the 21st century. Why can't we use our racial past as a motivator to fulfill our baptismal covenants, to stand in places of empathy and mourn with those that mourn and recognize what racism looks like, be willing to look through someone else's eyes because we've experienced the pain of rejection in our own racial past. Nowhere to the degree uh, that African Americans have experienced. Um, never want to make that kind of claim. That's not what I'm suggesting. Right. I'm suggesting that our history can serve as a profound motivator for us to stand in places of empathy for uh, the racism that we see taking place today and turn our fraught racial past into a positive racial future. We should be at the forefront right, of speaking out. Uh, but we need to understand our own racial history uh, to then <clears throat> be willing to stand firmly and say, hey, we look, we, we know... Uh, what it looks like to experience it from the outside. And then we also know what it looks like to participate in it from the inside. Both of those things are not good. Um, let's stand in a firm place uh, to move us forward into uh, claiming that universal gospel that Joseph Smith launched uh, when he launched, uh, you know, this, this religious movement. Paul, thank you for your work as a historian of the Latter-day Saint past, helping us to uh, so much better understand our history. And uh, thank you for your wise words joining with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. So long. Thanks so much for listening, and a special thanks to Paul for coming on to talk with Terrell. And to everybody who's left a positive review of our podcast or content on any platform, we really do appreciate it. We read each review and comment and are grateful for the encouragement and for helping get the word out about Faith Matters. We hope everybody's staying healthy and safe. And as always, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.